Good to be back here. It's uh, what last year, wasn't I? Last year I was here, yeah. Well, then I must have done something right. I was invited back. <laughs> you often wonder when you're not invited back. Hmm, must have been that one statement I made. Uh, well, it's good to be back, and it is a lovely day. I just uh, went walking down the, the street here and turned to the right, and the neighborhood is just a dead end. I didn't realize. Uh, I mean, I knew you guys were butted up against a cemetery here, but that thing goes out some distance. So, um, yeah, but it was very nice. Very beautiful day. Glad to be back. And I uh, want to explain what I'm going to do today. We're going to be looking at Romans 4 and 5 in our meetings today. But um, the translation I'm going to use is the one that I put together. And that's why we have it on the screen. Uh, this translation that I put together is based on um, several things. Number one, as I uh, used, obviously, the King James as the framework and um, then began to look at older Protestant Bibles, such as William Tyndale's 1534 edition, which was his last edition uh, before he was put to death, um, and the Geneva Bible of 1599, which is uh, a very, uh, actually, to be very honest, that was the Bible that our founding fathers came to America with. It wasn't the King James. Uh, the King James, when it was first published in 1611, uh, for over a century, maybe a century and a half, uh, Protestants in, in general did not want that Bible. They dis actually despised it. And... Um, it, it, uh, for some reason, it just grew uh, into popularity. Uh, but the Bible that was uh, found in America was the Geneva Bible. <clears throat> and uh, by the way, the, the reason King James wanted a new translation because he despised the Geneva Bible. Um, because the Geneva Bible is staunch Protestant, uh, especially in its footnotes. Not too pleasant towards the, the king or um, the papacy. And I also used uh, John Wesley's translation of 1755. Very good translation. And, um, and various other translations um, that were Protestant in nature. And also Protestant commentaries uh, dating back, uh, some of them from the 17th century, um, even a little bit earlier, actually, and, uh, and the 18th century, some early, mid-19th century. But I did not use any modern-day evangelical commentaries or translations. Um, you know, just I'm not a friend of the ecumenical movement. So what I did was I put together a translation infused with commentaries. And, of course, by the way, as uh, I also use the pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, any comments they might have made on the Book of Romans or commentaries, and, of course, naturally the spirit of prophecy. So that's just a little footnote there. So uh, as you have that there, you will uh, please pay attention to the screen because that's, as I say, is the translation I'm going to be using and uh, we're looking here at chapter 4, and I've got to figure out where do I point this thing. I pointed at that. All right, let's see if we can get that thing to work. Well, uh, right, wonderful. Okay, we're, we're good to go. 
All right, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to come together to study. Please help me to speak the words of life. Bless each and every one here. May the Holy Spirit be poured out upon us on this wonderful occasion as we assemble together in peace. Grant us, dear God, thy loving kindness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to say that... um, Just kind of give a little prelude, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. When you look at chapter 1 of Romans, it's fundamentally dealing with the sins of the Gentiles. Um, And then chapter 2 deals with the sins of the Jews. Chapter 3, Paul reminds the Jews that, um, you know, they have uh, really nothing to boast about because they actually are hypocrites. They're sitting in judgment of the Jews, or excuse me, they're sitting in judgment of the Gentiles, um, when they have no right to do so only because that they themselves are committing the very sins that they condemn in the Gentiles. Pretty hypocritical, don't you think? And, um, and you know, just as a little footnote in this, this is why Paul says in Romans 3, we've all sinned and come short of God's glory. It's just a reminder for everyone, before you cast that stone Maybe you might want to take a good look at yourself because I got a, I just got a funny feeling you're not as good as you might think you are. And um, it doesn't mean we shouldn't stand up and declare what's right and we shouldn't make a stand on particular issues. Absolutely. Just be very careful how you go about doing it. It reminds me of what Joe Cruz used to say to me. He said, you know, Ray, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So let's have a little, let, let's, let's, let's put it this way. Um, let's put some compassion in our rebukes if it's necessary. And I understand, as I say, sometimes it is. But let's just remember where we all came from and who we all are. Now, when he gets to chapter 4, he's going to, obviously, he's picking up where he left off an argument in regard to the nature of justification. For the Jew felt that man was justified by the things that he did. In other words, it... It relegated itself to works. And the primary issue that the Jew was struggling over was the issue of circumcision. You remember Acts chapter 15, the great Jerusalem council, how that they said the Jews who were converted to Christianity, who who still uh, clung to the old Judeo system, said, except a man be circumcised after the manner of Moses, he cannot be saved. The apostle Paul, Barnabas, and others who stood up and said, well, this is not the gospel. Because if that's the, the, the fact that a man has to be circumcised in order to be saved, you're relegating the issue of salvation to works. And if it's of works, then it can't be of grace. And if it's not of grace, then it can't be of faith. And, uh, and so you, you, you throw out the whole uh, sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if... In the final analysis, a man can be saved by the things that he does. In other words, he's equating based on what I do, therefore I deserve to be redeemed. Then there's no need for Jesus Christ. Why would he have to even come? I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I can do it on my own. But this is why you have chapters 1 and chapter 2, reminding everyone we've all sinned. You're not better than the person sitting next to you. We're all in the same boat. Sinners in need of a Savior. We've all sinned. And let me tell you, if you're honest with yourself, you be honest right now. You tell me. Now, I don't mean any volunteers, please, but I'm just, I just want you to think in your head. 
You tell me if you ever evaluate your life for what it really is, and I mean in terms of the past, let me ask you something. You ever said anything, done anything you're ashamed of? Yeah, you know full well. Would you like to have the privacy of your life exposed in public? No, you wouldn't. You know full well there are things you've said, you've done, you thought you're utterly ashamed of. And you hope and pray to God it never gets exposed. If we could just remember that, I think we would treat one another differently. And so Paul's reminding everybody in those first two chapters, we're all in the same boat. Nobody's better than the other person. That's why he says there's no boasting here. Jews, and this is the primary focal point, obviously, is is the stubbornness of the Jews, the unwillingness to let go of the past. Now, it's understandable. I mean, literally, for thousands of years, they were living a certain way, a certain worship style. They had the sanctuary, the prophets and the patriarchs. They had the law. They had the covenant. They had all of these things. And for thousands of years, this is what they were doing. Now, all of a sudden, here comes the apostle Paul says, oh, by the way, all that's done away with. That's a hard pill to swallow. But it shouldn't have been that difficult had they been paying attention to the prophets. For God foretold of all these things. And had they properly understood the sanctuary message, they would have learned that salvation is a gift freely offered by God on behalf, uh, 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 on behalf of man. That, the, that, that it's not based on what you do. That's why you were to bring a sacrifice. And that victim, that innocent victim who did not deserve to die, died in your behalf. This innocent victim paid... The price that you should be paying. So it became a substitute for your sins. For you, it took on itself your guilt, your shame. And the blood, when the priest took the blood from the the sacrifice of the altar, what did he do? He went into the sanctuary, the holy place, the first apartment, walked in, dipped his finger in, in the blood, and sprinkled it on the veil. What did that symbolize? Remember, he's transferring the sin from you to the victim, to the blood, into the sanctuary. There's a, now a record of your sin. And once a year, the high priest would enter in, and what would he do? He would cleanse the record of sin in the sanctuary. It's called the Day of Atonement, or also known as the Day of Blotting Out of Sin, the, the removal of the record of sin. And those during that day did not cooperate with the high priest as he was ministering there in the most holy place, were what? Excluded. They were cut off and removed from Israel forever. And of course, this teaches us very clearly the concept of the gospel. That was the sacrifice that the victim gave essential for salvation? Yes. But did that finalize the atonement? No. Because remember, we sin. We are guilty. But a substitute came. And so our sins were confessed on to that victim. And what happened? Then, as I say, he was slain. The blood now transfers the record of that sin, and then it moves into the sanctuary. And so Paul was trying to help them to understand that they needed to go back and realize the significance of all these things, but they, they simply forgot it all. And when you come to chapter 4, Paul, as I say, he dovetails into the end of chapter 3, which talks about the significance of the nature of justification, that it's by faith and not by the works of the law. And what's also interesting, too, 
is when you begin to look at these uh, these first three chapters, Paul talks about how the, uh, who really constitutes a, a real Jew there at the end of chapter 2. Who's a real Jew? Who's a real Christian? Who's a real Seventh-day Adventist? And he talks about the nature of, of, of the, 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 the way in which God views man. We look at each other from the external aspects because, remember, we're natural beings. We live in a natural world. And so we use our senses. I see you. I hear you. I can touch you. So forth. You know, we, we're, so this tells me you exist. You're here. I judge based on what I perceive my senses are telling me. But that's not how God, God judges. For he told Samuel, he told Samuel, man looks in the outward appearance, but God looks where? In the heart. God is not deceived by the appearance of man. That's why whatever man sows, that shall he also reap, Paul said. Remember what he said prior to that? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. You can't hide from God. You and I can play church from, and, and we can uh, basically hoodwink one another. Oh, he's a godly Christian. Well, she's a holy, holy woman in God. Really? Are you sure? Well, that's what you perceive. But the reality may be the opposite of what you perceive. And so God sees us as if we're completely naked, exposed. Nothing can be hidden from the Almighty God. Nothing. And so God sees things as they are. You see, the Bible is a book of reality, not a book of fantasy. It's not Hollywood. The Bible is a book of reality. This is why human nature really despises the Bible. Because the Bible only deals in the realm of reality. It tells you the truth. If you want a fantasy, as I say, go to Hollywood. And, uh, and so this is one of the reasons why people even in the church despise the truth. Because they don't like the reality of being reminded of who they really are. They would prefer, as Paul says, you know, having itching ears, more comfortable things spoken unto them. Now, that doesn't mean the attitude. He's not talking about attitude. He's not talking about, uh, the, you know, an inappropriate way in which you deliver the message, although that should be done in the most proper and most uh, ethical and moral way. Absolutely. He's talking about content of the message. He's talking about the truth itself. And so the Apostle Paul now comes in chapter 4 and he begins his dissertation picking up on the nature of the, uh, of the issue of justification by faith. And here he's going to use the life of Abraham because Abraham in the minds of the Jew is the greatest Jew of them all. Why? He's the father of the Jewish nation. Now there are three people considered in the eyes of Judaism great people. I mean great men. You have Abraham, you have, you have uh, David, and you have Moses. Three Great men in the minds of the Jewish religion. But the greatest, as I said, is Abraham. He's, it all starts with him. Now what's interesting here is the Apostle Paul is going to use the life of Abraham to illustrate his, his position in regard to the nature of justification. How is a man justified? justified? On the basis of what is a man declared righteous in the, before the eyes of God? Remember, what is the, Jewish, the Jews' fundamental position? Well, it's by, it's by works. Now, their argument is over the nature of, of, of uh, circumcision because they're pushing this on the Gentiles. So what better way to illustrate the nature of justification than the life of Abraham in relation to ju- circumcision? And he's going to prove that Abraham was declared righteous by God before he was circumcised, not after. 
And what does that simply do? It removes the argument from the Jews. How then can you possibly push circumcision as the basis upon which a man is saved when God saved Abraham before he was circumcised? And he's the father of us all. There you go. I guess I can close up my sermon. Let's begin, shall we? Now, as I say, I'm using my translation. You can follow along the King James. That's fine. No problem there. Um, but look here, watch what he say. it says. And Paul says, now, what has Abraham, our father, found re- with respect to the flesh that would justify him? Nothing, Paul says. For if he found righteousness on the basis of his works, then he could boast. Isn't that true? In other words, if you could actually save yourself, you've got something to brag about. I mean, that's worthy of boasting. But the fact that Abraham recognized in and of himself that he could not save himself, there was no room for boasting. But actually, Abraham had nothing to boast about before before God. Why? The truth of the matter is that Abraham did not receive righteousness of God as a reward of his works. For in Genesis 15, 6, uh, 6, says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Notice the textual evidence that Paul used to establish the fact that, it man, that Abraham was saved by faith and not by works. And if that's the case, then how can you possibly push the issue of circumcision? Let me illustrate. He says a person who works for a living gets paid. Now notice, he has earned his reward. He does not receive his reward as a gift, but rather it is of debt. Let me stop right there. Now we should all understand that this is an illustration that's very easy to be understood, whether you're an employee or an employer. You work for so many hours a day, and uh, you have uh, entered into a covenant agreement with your employer that you would work for so much an hour. You said you would fulfill certain requirements, and he, in the return, would pay you then a certain salary, therefore also uh, with it maybe some benefits along the way. So there's a mutual uh, agreement between the two. Now, whatever the employer bestows upon you, you earned. It wasn't a gift. He didn't give you anything. Because you're working so many hours a day based on the labor, notice the language, the labor, the works that you perform for so many hours a day, you earn the money that is given to you. Isn't that right? He doesn't give you anything. He wouldn't have a business if he did. So here the Apostle Paul illustrates his point. He's saying, now look, those who work for a living earn their wages. It's not given to you. Now this is a very common understanding. Everyone can comprehend this. It doesn't matter. It's just a very easy way to communicate. By the way, it's a very good way to teach. Use practical lessons that are common among the man. Paul here was obviously understood the concept of economics within the employment and employer situation. Verse 5, he says this, But to the person who does not attempt to purchase justification by works, instead he believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is placed to his credit as righteous. So he flips the coin over, gives the other opposite side. But the person who doesn't rely on his works but rather trust in Christ, believes in Christ alone as the means by which he'll be saved, that person is now counted righteous before the eyes of God. In other words, he's simply saying this, you can't earn salvation. So stop trying. He said, Brother Ray, I'm not interested in circumcision. I mean, I don't care about all these, the old Judeo things. Listen very carefully. 
It may well be that you're not into Judaism per se. But the problem is, dear friends, there's a natural tendency within human, human nature, whenever man falls, to try to somehow rectify the problem themselves. When they can't rectify the problem. For if you could rectify the problem of sin, then you wouldn't need Christ. So if you should perchance, I said if, not when, I said if perchance you should fall, then what you've got to learn is the art of relying wholly upon Christ. Like Jacob, when he wrestled Jesus that night, in the beginning he didn't realize it was Jesus. He actually thought it was an enemy. His brother, uh, uh, troops, he thought his men had infiltrated his camp. And so Jacob was wrestling, thought it was an enemy of the camp, and he was fighting for his life. Now listen very carefully to the analogy here. Here he's wrestling. And of course, eventually as the day is about to break, the angel says, uh, of course, again, he doesn't know it at the time, but eventually it dawns on him, let me go, let me go. And of course, it starts to dawn on him who who he's wrestling, because this is supernatural power. He can't believe this. And he says, I will not let you go, except you do what? Except you bless me. And again, so he finally he's wrestling, wrestling. What does Jesus do? He touches his thigh, dislocates his thigh bone. Now, now, but now listen, he still holds on to Jesus. As painful of an experience this may be, it's a trying time. He still is holding on to Jesus. Now, what's interesting is, it's fascinating this, we're told in the scripture, and the spirit of prophecy elaborates much more, he fell helplessly upon the breast of Jesus, so that in the final analysis, even though he was clinging on to Jesus, Jesus was actually holding him up. In other words, he no longer had the ability to wrestle. He had spent his last energy. And once he leaned wholly upon the breast of Jesus, and Jesus now held him up, that's when Jesus changed his name from Jacob to Israel. From one who sinned, who's a deceiver, that's what Jacob is, to one who's one who overcomes. And when we learn the art of surrendering to God and falling helplessly upon the breast of Jesus and allow him to hold us up completely, not partially, completely, then you'll learn and understand how to have peace and victory in your life. The reason so many are struggling with sin is because they're trying to redeem themselves. They're trying to solve the problem themselves. You cannot solve the, the sin problem in your life. Now you say, well, Brother Ray, don't we have a part to play? Absolutely, you have a part to play. You've got to cooperate with God in the plan of salvation. But you've got to understand that there's a difference between someone who's cooperating with God in the plan of salvation versus someone who, who maybe unconsciously is trying to actually rectify the problem themselves. And we've got to understand that you can't. And so Abraham is clearly given as an example of someone who's justified by faith and not by works. Paul goes on now to illustrate in David's life. He said, even David describes the blessing of the man to whom God imputes righteousness without works. Saying in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So even David confirms the testimony uh, that was given in the book of Genesis in regard to the nature of justification. So what does Paul do? He now has two people, two experiences, uh, confirming his testimony. And you've got to understand something here, that when the Apostle Paul is writing, you have to remember that Paul was a lawyer. And he argues like he does when he's in a court of law. He's building a case. And he's already, by the way, 
long before we get to chapter 4, he's already dismantled the argument of the nature of justification. But Paul isn't satisfied with simply just, you know, uh, you know maybe uh, just hitting it from one angle. You'll find that when you read Paul, he comes from various angles, establishing a particular issue. And uh, there's many reasons as to why he does that. One, as I say, he is a lawyer, so he thinks like a lawyer, he acts like a lawyer, he writes like a lawyer, he argues like a lawyer. That's why the the Apostle Peter said, you know, some things that Paul writes are hard to be understood. That's because, you have to understand, the Apostle Paul was an academic. He was He's what we call a, a, um, a professor for the professors, an academic for academics. He, this man was an intellectual. But Peter, God bless him, he was a fisherman. Not, nothing wrong. I'm not saying he was, uh, you know, a country bumpkin. But I'm trying to tell you that he wasn't academically trained. The apostle Pete Paul was. He was trained in Roman law, Hebrew law. And we could go down the list of the academic uh, accomplishment of this man. He was an intellectual. And so now he picks up and he has now two witnesses. Now, let me tell you something. He already won the argument when he quoted the life of Abraham. Now he brings in David. And what's interesting about David is who's to come through the line of David, the Holy Messiah. David is a very, very important figure in Judaism. So here he has two of the three witnesses on his behalf. And by the way, you can actually technically say all three because who wrote the book of Genesis? It was Moses. So here you have Moses, Abraham, and David all involved. And who are you going to bring? If you imagine Paul, he's going to quarterly and he says, and your witnesses are... Yeah, I just called Moses, David, and, and, and Abraham as my, my witnesses. And they all agree with me. You see, he's wiped out the argument. Now, he goes on in verses 9 to 12. Um, that's right, I got to point it to that. There we go. He said, how can, he says, can this blessing of receiving and experiencing God's righteousness be acquired only to those who have been circumcised, or can the uncircumcised acquire it as well? Of course, he's taught Jews and Gentiles, right? Can can they as well receive it? Now, look what he says. For we say, now underscore that for we say. Who's the we? He's talking about Jews, not Gentiles. Isn't Paul a Jew? Did he include himself in that statement? Yeah. If, 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 If he was excluding himself, he would say, you say. You people say this. He says, we say this. You know, it's like if I say we, meaning we Seventh-day we, we Seventh Adventists believe. We say this. I'm making it very clear who I'm talking to and the nature of something very important. Now, listen very carefully. He says, we say. Now, he brings in a fourth witness. And in the court of law, there's no greater witness than the words of your own enemy. Right? If I'm going to court with you and you're suing me over something... And I've got your own testimony recording that what I'm saying is true and your testimony is false. When I record, when I play that in the court of law, the judge is going to look at you and say, Sonny, well, you were in trouble because you committed perjury. You lied under oath. You said this wasn't true. But now here's the witness. Your own words are used against you. Now notice what he does. We say. He's now invoking a common saying made among the Jews. This is something they're all familiar with. This isn't some obscure statement being made. This is something they all say basically every week. We all say this, Paul says. Well, if we say it, why are you keep arguing over the opposite? 
That's what his point is. Now watch. For we say that Abraham's faith was placed to his credit as righteousness. Now that was a common saying among Jews. Well, if as I say, if it was so common, why do you keep pushing circumcision? That's the point what Paul is making. How was the right, righteousness of God credited to Abraham? Was it before he was circumcised or after? Now, the moment Paul makes that statement, every Jew now knows. He knows where he's going, and he knows very clearly the implications of the argument. Was it when he was circumcised? That would mean that righteousness is by works. But was it when he was uncircumcised? Therefore, righteousness is by what? Faith. So when was Abraham declared righteous? Before or after he was circumcised? Well, every Jew knew what? It was before. Well, if it was before he was circumcised, once again, Paul says, well, then, you know, this is a common saying we make. Why do you keep pushing it? Why do you keep pushing uh, circumcision? Verse 11. Now, Abraham received circumcision. Now, listen very carefully. Why did God institute circumcision? There's a... What, did I touch something? Oh, oh, I don't have it all. Thank you very much. That's, I appreciate that you got to keep... See, that's you got to keep an eye on the pastor. Okay, verse 11. Now, Abraham received circumcision as an outward sign of his faith in God. An inward seal of the righteousness of God, which is by faith. This is the whole point of why God instituted circumcision. Remember, when Abraham, when God came to Abraham and said, you will have a child. Abraham and Sarah, at the beginning, they didn't believe God, did they? No, they didn't. And so... Sarah said to Abraham, take Hagar, my handmaid, and through her we'll have the promised child. Now notice, God made a promise. God made a promise. And they, Abraham and Sarah, what did they do? They are natural creatures like us, right? They, have the, they live in a natural world. They, they then did this. They looked at the circumstances that they found themselves in and said, well, the promise that God made naturally can't happen. Because she's beyond the age of bearing children. So it can't happen biologically, right? It's just not going to happen. So they went about devising their own plan to fulfill God's promises. Now, is that what God said they should do? No. Because that would relegate the promise null and void. Why make a promise? God wouldn't have to make a promise. He said, all he would do is say, look, have a child through Hagar. There you go. That'll settle the issue. But that's not what he said. He said, no, it's going to be through Sarah. Now, listen very carefully. Faith. I want to share something with you. Faith. Faith has nothing to do with the natural world. Faith operates in the natural world only because we're in the natural world. Listen very carefully to me. I told you we operate based on our senses. I know that you is sitting. God is a supernatural being. Isn't that right? And God is in the business of doing the impossibility. Now listen very carefully. Meaning what? That God is in the business of doing the impossibility in the natural world. It's not impossible in the supernatural world. It's impossible in the natural world. Now, none of our senses constitute the basis upon which you then believe in the promise that God gave 
to function in the natural world. So what does God do? In other words, you don't use your senses as the basis upon which you believe God or not. Because if you use your senses as the basis upon which you're going to believe God or not, guess what? You will never believe God. Because how many of you have ever seen him? You've never seen him. How many of you have ever touched him? You've never touched God Almighty. None of your senses would be able to grasp the fullness of what God said in regard to the promise. So God has to give us a gift, a supernatural gift, that though it operates in the natural world, it can function as well in the supernatural. And what is that? It's called faith. Faith transcends the natural world. Faith is not dependent nor reliant on my senses. It has nothing to do with what I see, nothing to do with what I hear, nothing to do with my touch or my taste or my smell. Really, faith is actually your sixth sense that you operate with in the natural world to touch the hand of God in the supernatural. So, Regardless of what I see or hear or, or my, my, my natural senses tell me, that's pushed aside because faith is not relying on that. Faith operates on another level. That's why Paul says that we live by faith and not by sight. Notice he, he talks about the, a sight, the natural senses. We don't operate on the natural senses. So when God promises you something, here's a supernatural promise. Right? God operates in the supernatural world. A supernatural promise has been given to you. He knows we live in the natural world. He created it. The problem is none of the senses we possess is able to grasp and hold on to the promise. Because they won't qualify. You see, this is why you have people today doubting creation and so many other issues because they're using their natural senses to understand a supernatural act. and made something. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. You know, like the virgin birth. Uh, that can't happen. That's not scientifically possible. Yeah, exactly. Wait, I'm glad you're waking up, Marcus. Thank God you understand it can't function and operate in the natural world. It defies all the laws of, of, of biology. Science, it defies it. Listen to me. People got to understand something. The science of biology, the sciences and the, and the natural laws, we call natural law, functions in the natural world. Natural law, natural law does not supersede God. God created natural law to function within the natural world. How many of you remember when you were a kid and you had science, you took biology, and they always, and they, I remember we had some, you know, microscopes, you know, you had to examine, you know, cut frogs up or whatever you have, you know, and, and you, you put it under the microscope, you had to examine it. Now, it says you have to, science is based on your understanding of what you see and what you hear and understand. It's based all on the natural law. God doesn't operate on that level. 
We operate on that level. And so faith takes you to a place that you could not otherwise go. And the difference between someone who has victory in their life and someone who's living a constant life of confusion is the difference between whether they activate their faith in the, uh, uh, in, in, the, in, in the supernatural. In other words, they're living by faith. Most of people who claim to be Christians do not operate that way. That's why they keep sinning. That's why they keep lying and cheating and stealing and we can go down the list. They haven't learned the art of living by faith. Let me tell you something right now. Living by faith is simply living by trusting God that what God said he will do for me, even though the natural world tells me otherwise. God says to you, I promise I'll give you victory over that sin, whatever it may be. You say, but brother, uh, you don't understand. I've been, it's, it's, it's addicting, it's, it's et cetera, et cetera. But listen, God's in the business of doing the impossibility. You say, well, you know, we, we, we're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes. That's if you continue to operate in the natural world. Yes, that's right. You'll sin till Jesus comes. That's exactly right. But if you learn to live by faith, you can have complete and full victory now. And by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, you can live a holy life from now to the, to the day that Jesus Christ returns. For if God can keep you in a state of grace over victory over sin for one second, why not two seconds? And if he can do it for two seconds, If God can keep you by the by His grace for one moment of time, why can't He extend that moment to the next? The fault's not with God. It's not, not the fault's not with the promises of God. It's man's inability to exercise faith in the supernatural. None of it makes any sense. Exactly. God never asked your opinion, nor did He ask you. What do you think? Does that make sense to you? Because you know, then we'll, we'll agree to this. It's not what He said. God simply makes a promise. He makes a covenant agreement. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And he simply asks, do you have faith? Do you believe? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And what's interesting is I said, he gives you the faith to believe. It's a gift. You can't even believe unless God gives you the gift. And so Abraham is justified before he was circumcised, not after. Circumcision is a sign. It's a, a, a very important sign. Abraham was circumcised after he failed in his covenant relationship with God. God brought it into existence to remind him not to rely on his flesh, but learn to live by faith. Listen, dear friends, God has made a promise to you and I. He said, I'll I'll give you eternal life. Now, I've never been to heaven. I've been to Sears, but I've never been to heaven. I've never walked the streets of gold. I don't know anybody's ever been there. I know of nothing about heaven other than what I'm told. Right out of the whole... That's it. That's all I know. What I've been told. And number two, uh, there is a little bit. There, when, when I was born again, like just as you, you know that when the Holy Spirit was given to you, it was a down payment of what was to come. A little down payment, a little taste as it were, right? You ever been to something, fight at somebody's house, and they give you kind of little, just a little taste of what's coming. You think, oh man, I'm in for a treat today. Woohoo! That's what God did. The moment you accepted him, he gave you a little taste of heaven. Just a little taste. And let me tell you, dear friends, Abraham 
Abraham, his life proves the nature by which God will justify man. And that is simply by faith alone. You must have faith to believe that what God promised, he's able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. That God operates in the realm of the supernatural. Friends, you and I, too, can operate in the supernatural. And we must, by the way, if we expect to get to heaven. Now, Paul goes on to say this. That uh, when uh, Abraham was circumcised, he says, This makes Abraham the father of all who believe, even though they are not circumcised, that the righteousness of God might be imputed to them also, that Abraham might be the father of not only the circumcised, but also of all who, would, uh, who walk in the steps of Abraham, in the steps of faith as Abraham did before he was circumcised. So the fact that Abraham was declared righteous prior to him being circumcised makes him the father of all, Jews and Gentiles, meaning those who live by faith in Christ. All who live by faith in Christ, Paul is saying, regardless of whether they've been circumcised or not, they are declared by, in the eyes of God righteous. Now we come to 13 to 17. Paul continues on with his argument in regard to the nature of the promise. He says, for God had promised Abraham that he should inherit the world. This again, going back to the promise that he made back in Genesis. And by the way, if you go back and study the life of Abraham in, in, in relation to this, Genesis 12 to 22, for a 45-year period of time, very interesting, for 45 years, Abraham... Abraham, when he was given the promise, first given in Genesis 12, and then offered up Isaac there in Genesis 22. If you read, the, read that whole history, you'll find very clearly that it took a 45-year span of time. And what's fascinating about that is, dear friend, you find that his faith was not always perfect during that 45-year period. You find that when Abraham was, was in a, what we call a catch-22, when his back was in the corner, what did he always resort to? He resorted to lying. This guy had a problem. This guy, whenever he got caught, you know, or things got really in a jam, for some reason, he was, it was natural to him, he would just lie. <coughs> so this, this man had a serious problem on his hand. Now, what's interesting, Sister White elaborates on this, and I recommend that you do a study of that life. Please listen very carefully. He did not have a perfect faith. His faith faltered during that 45-year period. But I'll tell you what he did have. And this is what we must all possess. He had a persevering faith. He had a faith that would not give up, even though he did fall. He got back up, asked God's forgiveness, and moved on. Friend, listen to me. Abraham had a persevering faith for 45 years. He made mistakes. He sinned against Almighty God. But he did not give up. He held on. He persevered. I mean, look, in the final analysis, <coughs> look at the alternatives. Where do you go? Back to the life you used to live? The life that you used to live brought you here. You tell me in all honesty, the life that you used to live, those of you who, who, who were uh, um, not raised Christians or not raised Seventh-day Adventists, you be honest with me. What was your life like? Don't tell me it was filled with happiness and joy and peace and goodness. Because let me tell you what, if it was filled with that, uh, you wouldn't be there. Your life is filled with the same, with 
heartache and pain, guilt, shame, misery, sorrow. You live with it every day. And, and I know in my case, in order to escape it, I did drugs. I did alcohol. I did other things to get away from it. But only the problem was, unbeknownst to me, it made the matter worse. So what do you do? You, you end up doing horror drugs. You drink even more than you did before. And the problem is, you don't realize, you just made the problem even worse. Now, some people, thank God, like me, who hit rock bottom, finally came to their senses. God had nowhere to go. I mean, because the next step for me was suicide. You know, drug overdose, something was going to happen, that's for sure. Let me tell you. Friends, Abraham had a persevering faith, a faith would not give up. We have got to learn. You may fail. I'm not saying you, you are going to fail. I say you may. That may possibly happen. You may. You may you may do something that's not right. Listen to me. Don't give up. That's what the devil wants you to do. Give up. Pick yourself up. Ask God for forgiveness and move on. And, and, and we're told by the spirit of prophecy, tell Satan. We're to tell him. And I, I don't know about you, but I actually do. I talk. I, I tell him. Not, not that I have a conversation with him, but I only do it when I rebuke him. And I tell him, there's Jesus Christ. This is what Sister Wade says. Tell Satan, there is Jesus with his hands stretched out. Inviting me to come back. Friends, he can't argue that. What can you use to argue against the blood of Jesus? Nothing. He knows it. So, for God had promised Abraham that he should inherit the world. It is evident that this promise was not given to him or to his descendants through the works of the law, but it was given through the righteousness of faith. For if they who are the heirs of the promise are, are righteous by the works of the law, then their faith serves no purpose, and the promise by which they are heirs is useless, right? That's null and void. There's no need to have the promise. Furthermore, instead of the law conferring life, it dispenses nothing but condemnation and death. For where there is no law, there can be no transgression. Therefore, the blessings of the promise of righteousness is of faith, that it might be of grace, that the promise might be firm, certain, uh, and effectual to all the spiritual seed of Abraham who live by faith, not to the Jews only, but to the Gentiles as well. As it is written in Genesis 17:5, I have made you the father of many nations. This promise was given to Abraham in the sight of God because Abraham had faith to believe that God would give life to the dead and call into existence those things that do not exist. Again, there's that supernatural element involved. <coughs> and what's interesting, this also has to do with you directly. Listen to me. That he believed that God could give life to the dead. Before you came to Jesus, you were dead in your sins. Then he says, call into existence those things that do not exist. God took nothing and made something. Listen to me right now. Before you came to Jesus, you had nothing at all but sin, guilt, death, and shame. So God took nothing and made something. What did he make? He made a righteous individual. Because you have no righteousness. And he took death and he gave you life. That's why he invokes those two concepts. Because faith is believing that God can take nothing and make something. And take something that In other words, what is God doing? He's doing the supernatural. 
Faith believes in the supernatural. Faith does not operate, as I say, in the natural world. And then we come to 18 to 22. 18 to 22. When Abraham was under the, was, uh, was under utterly hopeless circumstances. Now this again, by the way, this point is illustrating what I've been talking about. Notice very carefully the language. It clearly indicates that Abraham, he was fully conscious of his natural surroundings. In other words, when we live by faith, we don't live a naive, gullible life. We understand our natural surroundings. We're fully aware of what exists around us. We know our shortcomings, at least we should be aware. And so faith isn't something to give uh, to the individual to excuse the, the circumstances that they found in. This would mean that you're naive, you're gullible. No. Faith recognizes the natural element, but does not take that into equation when referring to accepting the promise of God. Faith simply pushes the natural element aside and reaches out to the supernatural promise. He says, um, so he says, when Abraham was under utterly hopeless circumstances. Now, by the way, this is, this is when he, he reaches rock bottom in, in terms of the promise. Because prior to this, going back to Genesis 12, God already gave him the promise. But he kept repeating the covenant in various forms and fashions. He says, seeing he, was, he had no heir against all poss- probability, he believed and had hope. In the promise that God would make him the father of many nations. Now notice, against all probability. The odds were against him? Yeah, the odds were against him. Why? Because he was operating in the natural world. So naturally, in terms of, like I say, biology, the the science of biology. Could Sarah give birth? Wasn't going to happen. Wasn't going to happen. Abraham needed a supernatural power. And that supernatural power was going to come from God. How did it come from God? Through a promise. How was Abraham going to activate that promise? Through faith. Not through the natural senses. He tried that once. He and Sarah. They blundered miserably. By the way, we're still living with the sins of the results of that sin. You know that, don't you? Yeah. The world is living with the sin. One sin. One sin has plunged this world into misery. One sin. All because he, refu- he uh, wouldn't live by faith. He chose to do it by works. <clears throat> Goes on to say, he believed and had hope that the promise that God would make him the father of many nations. According to that which was promised in Genesis fifteen five. So shall your seed be. Now listen very carefully. Abraham did not take into consideration his hopeless circumstances. Now please listen. He did not take into consideration his hopeless circumstances. When he believed that God had promised him, even though he was about 100 years old and Sarah was well beyond the years of childbearing. So he did not allow the natural circumstances that surrounded him to be a part of the equation. It says, verse 20, he staggered not or even, or even hesitate for one moment at the promise of God through unbelief. Notice, instead he was strong in his faith, implicitly obeying God, giving God all the glory. <coughs> he didn't wait for one moment. God made the promise. This time he had learned his lesson. He implicitly obeyed. He knew full well he was 100 years old. He knew Sarah uh, uh, could not bear a child. He, all, he was fully aware of that, but did not even for one moment take that into consideration. 
His faith bypassed the natural, entered the supernatural, grasped the promise of God, thus activating the word of the Lord, and it came to pass. Sarah had a child. And he says in verse 21, And Abraham was absolutely certain, there wasn't even a doubt in his mind that what God had promised, he was more than able to perform. Therefore, this is the reason why Abraham's faith is credited to him for righteousness. This is how we exercise faith. Implicitly trusting in the Lord, obeying him, not taking into consideration the circumstances in regard to the nature of whether or not we exercise our faith. We understand where we are. Look, dear friends, we should all recognize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I have fallen short of God's glory. But God says I can keep you from falling. I can promise you I'll give you the kind of life. Now, the natural tells me no. Sorry, can't have it. But again, faith is given by God so that we can reach out into the supernatural world and, and thereby faith grasp onto the promises of God. And thus activate the promise. Listen to me. When Peter, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, when Peter was, saw Jesus walking on the water, and then he said, Jesus, let me come out with you, please. Can I, can I walk, too walk on water? And what did Jesus say? Well, come, come on. And so he did. He was walking on water. Imagine that. Walking on water. By the way, just a little footnote on this. I don't know, have you ever tried that? <laughs> I have tried it on many occasions. I've yet to succeed. <laughs> Although I will keep on trying. Um, but uh, but he actually, what did he do? Now listen to me. He was living in the natural world. But did he find? Did he defy natural law? How could he defy natural law? That is scientifically impossible. It's scientifically impossible. What did he do? Now here's a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. Here is someone operating in the natural world, performing a supernatural act. It defies all the laws of reason and logic. It makes no sense. But faith has nothing to do with whether it makes any sense. As I said, God doesn't come and say, what do you think? Is that okay? Does that make sense to you? I'll do this and then. No, he doesn't say that. God simply states the fact. He states what he's going to do. But whether you're going to believe or not. And so Peter operated. Now listen, while he was in the natural world, what was he doing while he was walking on water? He was operating in the supernatural. And that's the point God's trying to help you and I see. We can actually do the supernatural while living in the natural world. We can live a victorious life in Jesus Christ. We can have peace of mind. We can, have, we can, have, we can do the things that God longs for us to do. God is waiting, waiting to perform supernatural acts through his church. The reason we don't see the dead raised, the people being healed, is because we lack the faith to believe that what God has promised he's able to do. We don't believe it. Because you know why? We're operating in the natural world. We're still using our senses. We're still, well, that doesn't make any sense. Again, I told you, God's not asking whether it makes any sense. Because he knows that in terms of the natural senses, none of it makes any sense. That every time God performs a supernatural act, and as I said, remember, God's not subject to natural law. Natural law is subject to God. So that when God performs a supernatural act, he doesn't break natural law. He suspends it. You understand? God does not break the laws he himself has established. But God has a right to suspend the law. 
He can say, you don't operate at this point in time. I'm putting you aside. I'm not breaking you. I'm simply suspending you. Because you don't apply under the scriptures. Because when Peter walked in water, did he defy the laws of gravity? Did he defy the laws of gravity? Sir Isaac Newton would have had a, uh, blew his mind away. The laws of gravity say it can't be done. And in the natural world, that's right. It can't be done. That's an act that is impossible to be performed in the natural world. But God doesn't operate in the natural world. And he's trying to get you and I to understand this. That we need to learn to start to operate in the supernatural. And that can only be done through faith. And every attempt you make to try to save yourself, every time you, if you do something wrong, oh, I'm going to do this and do that to kind of rectify the problem. Don't you understand what you're trying to do? You're trying to do what God has told you, you can't be, that you can't do. In other words, you're trying to save yourself. When you've got to realize and say, Lord, I've sinned. I can't rectify this problem. I'm going to come to you because you're the only one that I know that can rectify it. Please forgive me. And, 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 and dear God, by faith, I grasp onto the promise. And, and I ask you to wash me in the precious blood of Jesus. And you know what he does? That, that problem goes away now. You're, it's new again. Now you, just, you pick yourself up and you keep moving forward. You said, Brother Ray, I just, I, I just sinned against God. Shouldn't I feel ashamed? You may well feel ashamed for the act in which you commit, but you must also recognize that you've been forgiven. In other words, dear friend, you may have remorse for what you have done, but you should not live a life of guilt. I regret many things I've done. I don't know about you. I regret many things. If you don't think there's a day that goes by, I don't regret ever having done drugs or alcohol. You're delusional. But I don't walk around with guilt. You understand? There's a big difference. I'm remorseful for what has happened in my past because of my own choices, my own foolishness. But I don't walk around with guilt and shame because I know Jesus has forgiven me. And there's a big difference between the two. You should always, you should always have remorse for what you've done is wrong. The person who says, I have no remorse for what I've done is wrong, I got a problem with you. Really, truly, you don't, then, then I genuinely question whether you've even repented. There's no excuse for sin. <clears throat> and we should never in any way even make light of it. And so Abraham implicitly obeyed God. And then we finally come down to verses 23 to 25. <clears throat> we close with this. Now when God's righteousness was imputed to Abraham, all of this wasn't written for his sake alone. But it was written for us as well. If we have faith in God, who has the power to bring life out of death, as he did when he raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up to die on account of our sins, inasmuch as it was God's purpose by the death of Christ to make an atonement for our sins and our justification, not only depends on the death of Christ, but also on his resurrection. I'm going to talk about that in a second. For God is not only concerned with our past sins, but he's also concerned with our future restoration. Now that last part there, I want to really focus on. <clears throat> and once again, by the way, notice how Paul invokes God doing the impossibility, raising the dead. In this case, he talks about the raising who? Jesus Christ. 
And so, in other words, notice how he ties in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Please listen very carefully. He ties in the supernatural act of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to justification. You say, well, what does that have to do with justification? Most people equate justification at the cross, meaning that salvation is complete at the cross. Now, you see, is it, did the cross provide a complete sacrifice? For atonement? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Of course it did. Meaning the sacrifice that Christ gave, was it sufficient? Yes. Did, did, did in any way Christ fall short of providing for the remedy of sin? No, absolutely not. It's not Christ plus something else. It's only Christ. Christ alone, as we say. All right? So listen very carefully. But notice what Paul does. In this particular case, now he argues the nature of justification relative to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what does the resurrection have to do with justification? It has everything to do with justification. Just as the cross provided the means by which man might be saved, now the resurrection comes into play. Why? Because what does the resurrection imply? Listen, dear friends. When Jesus rose from the dead, what did he do? Stay on this earth for the remainder of the time? It's not what the scripture says. What did he do? He eventually did what? Send it into heaven. Acts chapter 1. 9 to 11. What did he do? He ascended into heaven. Where did he go? The book of Hebrews tells you. Where did Jesus Christ go? He sat on the right hand of the majesty on high. Where? In the sanctuary. Where in the sanctuary? In the first apartment, the holy place. Jesus ascended into heaven to take up the Melchizedek priesthood. And there began the work of the finalization of the atonement, meaning in terms of the first phase of it uh, in regard to the sanctuary. And then, of course, it would kick in in October 22 of 1844 into the most holy place. There would begin the antitypical day of atonement of the blotting out of sins. Notice how he ties in the resurrection to the nature of justification, meaning, dear friends, that justification is tied in not only to the cross, but the resurrection and ascension of Christ into the most into the sanctuary there into the priesthood of Jesus Christ as he takes up the Melchizedek priesthood. Don't you see, dear friends, that the nature of salvation is tied into the sanctuary message? Paul makes a strong argument in favor that salvation, salvation is in Christ alone, but that his sacrifice as well as his priesthood are as essential to to the atonement. Right there. But most people miss out that, that argument in the last several verses of chapter 4. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ relative to the issue of the nature of justification. He already made it clear it's by faith. That's done with. He's made it clear it's all by faith. But now he says, I want you to pay attention to the resurrection and how it plays a vital part in your salvation. Oh, dear friends, Seventh-day Adventism is unique, very unique. I never said we were better than other people. But the message that, we, that we've been blessed with is different than any other church on the face of this earth. Listen very carefully. We, we have been made the repositories of God's truth. We hold the three angels' message. The Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, etc. do not. We hold the message of the sanctuary message in regard to the nature of the true atonement. Not the other churches. We do. We understand the, the true eschatology in terms of last day events of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those in the, in the other denominations that understand certain aspects, but fundamentally they do not. And I could go down the list. The state of the dead, the Sabbath, 
and the millennium, etc., etc. Oh, dear friends, don't you see what God has done for us? He has placed upon us a great responsibility, the great privilege, a great privilege to share with others the message that God has bestowed upon us. But listen, dear friends, what's the point of sharing with others if you don't know how to live by faith? If you don't know how to exercise faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ? Friends, we've got to learn that it's not by works that we're saved. It's nothing that you can do to save yourself. We've got to learn to lean wholly on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. And he alone will save us from our sins.